Today's episode is brought to you by Sacrate. Are you looking to add quality concrete, mortar, and stucco mixes, as well as repair and specialty items to your product lineup? Sacrate provides the tools you need to run a better business, whether that's through exceptional customer support, sales and marketing tools, varied product assortments, or just finding reliable products. Sacrete offers knowledgeable retail experts that understand the needs of your store. To learn more, visit www.sacrete.com slash hardware retailing. First, I just want to welcome our listeners to another episode of Hardware Retailing's podcast, Tell Me More, hosted by myself, Renee Shagnon. Uh, Today, we are talking to Gina Schaefer, co-founder and CEO of a few cool hardware stores, a chain that includes 11 Ace Hardware stores throughout Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Gina, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today and share your insights and your story with our listeners. Um, You're welcome. Do you mind kind of introducing yourself to everyone? Hopefully I did an okay job with my intro that I put together. <laughs> no, you did, you did a great job. My, uh, I'm, I've been in business since 2003 and have 11 stores and about 230 employees now, I think, um, in three locations, but primarily in the D.C., Maryland um, metro areas, uh, very urban stores. And so we have, I guess, two stores that would fall out of what would be called traditional urban uh, environments. The rest are very much city stores and the fun and challenges that go along with that. Uh, I work with my husband. He joined me three months after I um, started the business, and so we've been working together ever since. He functions as a CFO, among lots of other things, um, and I, I, I wear the CEO title. All that all that's always seems very formal for yeah. you know, a hardware business. Or we still think of ourselves as a very local mom-and-pop business, and so some of those titles seem a little, a yeah. little strange for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before we kind of dig into your whole story of the of the multi-store chain that you guys have and run, um, I'd love to just hear a little bit of your backstory about you as a person and, and what kind of got you into this industry and maybe talk about some of the things you did before you got into the hardware industry. Sure. Um, I grew up in a small town in northeastern Ohio called Louisville, and I actually, it's funny in hindsight, I hadn't thought about this when I was considering opening my first location, but I had worked at a true value um, for Metzger's Hardware when I, I think I was 16. Wow. Um, it, was a, it was a brief summer job. I mean, it really was a small town, and there weren't a lot of job opportunities, but that's a very old family business. It's been there a long time. It's, uh, they've since converted to Ace and expanded and, and still in business, which is great to see. But I uh, went to college in Springfield, Ohio, Wittenberg University, and planned on uh, planned really on working in government and wanted to start my career, though, in Washington working for a nonprofit. So that's what got me to D.C. from uh, small town southern Ohio at that point. Yeah. I moved here to work for a nonprofit called the Children's Defense Fund. And very, very, um, I guess, circuitous route, but just fortunate for me, I took a year off to go to Brazil and I traveled and wow. I taught English. And I came back and I spoke Spanish and Portuguese. And I met a woman who was working at a tech company who needed someone who spoke Spanish and Portuguese. I mean, it was just really (laughs) being in the right place. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I I joke that I'm not even sure I knew how to turn a computer on at that point. (laughs) Um, But she, I got the job, and that's actually where I met my husband and a whole host of friends that I currently have. And that started me down this path of working um, for technology companies probably for the next, 
I guess maybe just the next three or four years. It wasn't very long. There were yeah. a lot of startups at the time that were getting money from angel investors and VCs, and they were opening and then closing. And yeah. I worked for a couple startups that failed, and so I kept getting laid off. And finally, I guess it was 19, it seems so long ago, 1999, 2000, let's see, 2001. Yeah. I was working for a startup that was about to fail, so I was again going to lose my job. Oh, gosh. And I'd always wanted to own my own business. Uh, I just never knew what I wanted to do. And I, I came home from work the day I found out, and I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to figure out what I want to do, and um, I'm going to stop putting myself in these situations where I keep getting laid off and having to start over again. So yeah. that's kind of a long story short. I mean, I was 30, I guess I was 31 when I opened the first location. So I hadn't had a very long career, yeah. um, some nonprofit and technology stuff. And then uh, a year of sort of wanderlust in parts of Brazil, which was that's fantastic. That's so cool. So, yeah. so what was it about hardware that drew you to it? I think it's, it's unique that you had um, you know, looking back, you're like, oh, one of my one of my jobs when I, you were you said you were in high school when you worked for yeah. for Metzger's. But um, what do you think drew you to the hardware industry? Were there any other like were you looking at other types of businesses and what kind of made you settle on? You know, I want to give hardware a shot. Well, it's funny. I don't I don't know. My husband would admit that I was a practical person, but we prior to getting married, we had independently moved and bought condos in, in the neighborhood where my um first store is in the neighborhoods called Logan Circle. Okay. Um, Logan Circle was a community that had been destroyed by the riots in 68 when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm. And for decades, basically, this neighborhood, it laid dormant. It, there was lots of nefarious activity, drug dealers, prostitution, lots and lots of boarded up houses. Um, and then all of a sudden there was a spark, kind of the beginning of the 90s, and, and people were just they just started tiptoeing back in. Yeah. Um, the housing stock was incredible, albeit boarded up. Um, there was this long Main Street area, 14th Street, that was also fairly boarded up. Um, and we moved into these condos, and we were surrounded by neighbors that kept complaining that they couldn't find places to buy hardware. And, and you know, it sort of becomes lore 16 years later. Was it really sounds so romantic when you talk about <laughs> it? But Mark and I would joke that we lived in the dark, our flapper was always busted, and, and our pictures were always on the ground, because the closest hardware store uh, was far enough away, you know, in urban communities you want to walk, and you don't want to have to go to the suburbs, and yeah. the closest location either was drivable to the suburbs, which was annoying, yeah. or it was about a mile walking to a small store with no parking, and so it still required a cab, and at the time, if you couldn't find parking. And at the time, cabs wouldn't come to Logan Circle. Like, you couldn't just call a cab. Wow. So um, I, I very, you know, I like to think I was brilliant. And in hindsight, I just got super lucky, I think, for having the idea. But I think when all of this sort of collided, I was like, well, shoot, we need a hardware store, and why can't I do that? Yeah. Um, so I found a landlord who, um, incidentally, grew up in Ohio as well. And so we bonded over that immediately, who was doing a lot of development in this community. And he really thought that having a neighborhood hardware store would be a great idea. And so he took a chance on me by, um, I paid a lot of money. Like my husband always says, I, I, <laughs> I paid a lot of yeah. money for that lease. Um, he didn't take that big of a chance, but he did because I didn't have any hardware experience or former you know, business ownership experience. Um, but I signed a lease with him uh, in 2002. And you signed up and you've always been with Ace, correct? Correct. Yeah. So when you were looking and like, okay, I'm going to do this because it wasn't a store that had already been there. You brought a, a brand new store to the area. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about like, 
I mean, maybe your first year, your first kind of, you know, years experience with with the industry and kind of the learning curve that you must have had to go through with that. Yeah, it was it was pretty big. I mean, I had had a lot of I had had business experience, and I had certainly watched great leaders at the nonprofits and technology companies that I worked at. Um, I had learned both how to be and not be as a leader, but I didn't know anything about hardware. Yeah. So I, I, I am by nature a nice person and helpful, which is good when you want to go into a customer service centric yeah. job. Uh, but I, you know, I learned how to cut keys and make paint the day I opened, which is just crazy if you think about all the prep work that goes into opening a store now and how I yeah. train my associates in advance and what the managers know how to do before I put them into a store and on and on and on. And you know, for the first probably the first 17 months, I didn't have a day off. I worked every single day in that store and had to learn how to use all of those tools. Not all, I mean, exaggerating, but, yeah. um, so I, you know, I, in hindsight, think everything was wonderful. I always joke that the cash, the cash register started running immediately and we had a line <laughs> around the corner and my husband's name is Mark. And he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Don't you remember? <laughs> yeah. Don't you? yeah. We were exhausted and we didn't know what we were doing and we didn't have enough employees and we were stressed. And I mean, we, we were in a community that was so incredibly supportive that I really think the spirit of the community carried us through. So we were making sales. We did mm-hmm. have to hire people immediately because we were much busier than we, than we anticipated and that ACE certainly anticipated um, for us. And so um, the beauty of that is that we were making enough money to be able to grow quickly and we were able, we were able to handle it. Yeah. Um, and then we were in this neighborhood that was just so excited to have a local shopping option that they were coming in, you know, five times a day. People would bring their dogs in on their morning dog walk and then their afternoon Aww. dog walk. And then they'd have somebody visit them from another part of town. And they would literally say, oh, I want to take you to my hardware store. Oh, my God. I love that. They, yeah. They thought it was so cool um, that we had a hardware store. So D.C. at the time had, this is March of 2003 when we opened, we had two, we had 600,000 residents in D.C. Okay. And there were four true values and one Home Depot. And that Home Depot had just opened the year before I did. Um, so that's 600,000 people. Yeah, that's the same thing. I guess the numbers were actually were even worse when we decided to open in Baltimore. There were no big box stores in the city limits and there were maybe two or three super tiny hardware super stores. tiny stores. Yeah. yeah. So we had a lot of, a lot of opportunity, but the, some of the other challenges, you know, we opened in a we want to be very urban because that's who we are. Yeah. I opened in a store that was 100 feet long, 20 feet wide, no parking, no loading dock, no storage, uh, three levels. So we had two floors plus a mezzanine and no elevator. So wow. I think when I was looking at some of your questions in advance, I was like, oh, physically it should have been a challenge, but thank goodness I was young enough to run up and down those stairs for days Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean... That's something even I'm like, oh, after after spending a day on your feet, you start to you're like, okay, where's the chair? Can I sit yeah. and talk to you now? <laughs> yeah, it's it's exhausting. I mean, the the sales associates get, I mean, in my book, tons of credit because even the store where my office is now, so that part- that first location has moved about four blocks. Okay, um, and it's almost doubled in size and. We also, we still have three levels. The third floor is the offices, but two floors of retail. But we do have an elevator. Oh, um, nice. And I, I tease my associates when they take the elevator instead of the steps. I'm like, really? You can't run the stairs? <laughs> oh, you caught me. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is nice to have, though, for accessibility for those that can't. Yeah. So well, all of your neighbors and everyone yeah. can come. That's, that's amazing. Because a lot of older People buildings, have. too, they don't even have that. So right. it makes it harder. Right. But, 
Yeah. Yeah. That's that old building was grandfathered in and so yeah. we would just run up and we would we would do the shopping for the customer. So there was a workaround at that point. Um, so yeah. someone would come in maybe in a wheelchair or they weren't able to go up the steps and we would just say, What do you need? and we would go upstairs and get as many options as, yeah. as we could. Uh, but it is nice here to be able to use that wheelchair or I'm sorry, that elevator for customers. For sure. So when did when did you go from one location and say, Okay, sure, we'll do a second and was that like scary making that leap and then what was the feeling afterwards like oh i can't handle more it's it's reminds me I and i don't have children but i i feel like you know people are like oh you have one kid and that's like overwhelming and then you have two kids and then all of a sudden you have like 10 kids and you're like well you just figure it out you know like you just do it <laughs> that is exactly how it works so um i mentioned that dc was sort of under retailed in yeah. 2003 and the overwhelming response that we got from our neighborhood carried over to other parts of the city. And so we had letter writing campaigns, email campaigns. I mean, it, in hindsight, and I wish that I'd saved all of these things, was the most flattering thing that could happen to a business owner. And so people would come in from other neighborhoods and they would say, please, we really want a hardware store. Um, D.C., like a lot of cities, is broken down into small communities that really treat themselves like small neighborhoods. And so they yeah. all want their own grocery store, their own pharmacy, their own hardware store, their own bookstore, library, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so we started getting these requests from around the city. And that probably happened for the first, gosh, probably the first 10 years we were in business. Mm -hmm. So it helped us hone in on where we were going to expand. And so we were in business for about a year. We started taking all of these requests seriously. We thought maybe we're on to something. Um, and then exactly two years to the date, we opened up our second location. So wow. We finally gave in to one of those neighborhoods. So you had, you had a toddler <laughs> store on one side and you had a newborn now. So, that, so now exactly. you're juggling the two. Exactly. <laughs> so well, what, and then what right. was it like, though, once that second store opened? How did you kind of juggle it? And did you feel like you were having to be in two places at once? Or was that something that you kind of planned for? So I think that's a great question because everybody always, everybody at the time was telling me that opening the second store would be the hardest thing that I would ever do. Um, and if you think about some of the things I've already said, like I didn't know how to make keys or paint until I opened my first store. I didn't know how to run a cash register. I didn't know anything about hardware. I had never, you know, mowed a lawn, like used many of the tools. The store was really in a weird location, you know, physically with the challenges and stuff that we had. Um, so. I didn't know why anyone thought that that second store would be so hard because I had I had mastered or my team had them. It sounds like I'm taking all the credit and I'm not, but like we had figured out how to run an urban hardware store. Yeah. So um, I wasn't scared at all. And you use the, the child analogy. I also don't have children, but the analogy I always use is you have to trust someone to take care of your firstborn mm -hmm. before you can have more. And so we had a an associate who we promoted to the manager's role. Um, at the second location because we wanted to start building a consistent culture because, yeah. and because I also knew that I could not be, nor did I want to be in two places at once. And so the people I think in hindsight who were really warning me the most were the people who probably had the hardest time with that trust issue yeah. or the two places at once issue. And I was not going to fall into that trap. Um, I have a very trusting personality. My husband does as well. So I think maybe a little bit, bit of it was just innate for us, but you know, it's always easy in hindsight. And in hindsight, we're like, yeah, those people were just afraid of how yeah. they were going to micromanage. Yeah. And honestly, uh, I think that 
micromanaging is an issue that all industries see. And it's the companies that I feel like find the most success are the ones that say, okay, I can't control every little thing. And if a mistake happens, the person's going to learn more from making that mistake organically than being like in fear that they're going to make a mistake. If that makes any sense. So yeah, no people make, we all, we may all make mistakes every day. I mean, I probably make 20 and who am I to say that, you know, I can't expect that to happen at a store that I can't see. Yeah. Um, So that was probably the best, the, the best mentality going into that second location. And then we opened one store every year for about the next eight. Oh my gosh. So did you have like, was your husband or was, or was it you or was it like, did you have a team that was kind of prospecting? It's, it's awesome too, that you had communities coming to you saying, we want you in our neighborhood. So you knew, okay, there's a need. There are people that want to shop at our store. And then how did you go about like getting those properties set up? It's almost like Monopoly, but with hardware stores. Right, Right. exactly. Well, DC is fairly small geographically. So even though we're dense, um, it's not a big area. So we knew a a lot of the communities Mm -hmm. um, fairly well. We set a couple standards for how we were going to expand and evaluate if people were coming in to ask. And one of those those, um, tenants, I guess, it was whether or not the neighborhood had a strong sense of shop local. Did they have a main street they already supported? Did they have a business association that was active? Did they have a community association that we could tell wanted to support local things? Yeah. And in hindsight, it's interesting because now with social media, it's so much easier to evaluate those kinds of things. And there's a lot more pressure on retail now. And so those things are even more important. But at the time, we wanted to make sure the neighborhood wanted to walk, you know, that again, building into that so that local were they supporting the local businesses that were already there and it could have been a corner liquor store it didn't matter to us but were they supporting that corner liquor store yeah and then um did the neighborhood just have a strong sense of identity so one interesting example we had to close a store we operated it for 10 years it never made any money the landlords wouldn't let us out of the lease when we opened that location the neighborhood did not have a name Oh. And we name all of our stores after the neighborhood. And we broke every rule in the book that we had made for ourselves because we thought that this was going to be uh, a great place to go. And we named it after the street it was on. Yeah. And so now we joke, like, geez, why didn't we listen to ourselves? There yeah. wasn't even a neighborhood name there. How did we think it was going to be successful? It's It's listening to your intuition and sometimes – you know, it's easier to be like, well, on paper, this sounds great. But if you really kind of listen to your gut and go, okay, something seems one of these things is not like the other, but you have to learn those lessons again. Yep. So, yep. Um, so what were some of the challenges as a leader? I know you, you said that going from one store to two, you had to learn to relinquish some of that control and then actually really taking some of these um, employees that you had and really developing them. What are some ways that you and your company has done that to really help those that are part of your team continue to grow and, and be those leaders in your organization? Um, so part of, part of building a strong culture is creating a, a level of consistency. So yeah. when we were getting ready to open our third location, we sat down with several folks. I mean, we were tiny at the time. We probably had, maybe there were 40 of us total between the two stores, 35, and we yeah. didn't have any really back office staff um, at the time. So we took, um, I remember sitting in a room and we had about four associates, a delivery driver, my husband and I, and we just started talking about 
what we did right, what we did wrong, how we wanted people to think about us, what kinds of good things were people saying about us, what kind of bad things were people saying about us, um, and what it boiled down to was what, what were the core values that we created. And we used the core, va- we used the core values to help build that consistency. So when an associate is hired, for example, one of our core values is always grow and share because mm-hmm. you can just geek out in the hardware store, right? Because there's so many products and cool projects you can have. Um, and so every day we should be learning something that we can share with a customer or a, a fellow associate. So when we hire people, we ask them to tell us about a time where they shared a piece of knowledge. Um, carrying through that consistency if we're doing an annual or biannual evaluation or if we're having a counseling session with an associate, we try to frame everything in the question of a core value. Can you talk about how that instance did not reflect you communicating respectfully to Mm -hmm. your boss or to your coworker or to the customer? Um, And so I think, you know, all of that also sounds a little rosy when you talk about it, when you put it in practice. It has all, there are all sorts of hiccups and and bumps in the road, but we created those core values when we went to store three, Mm -hmm. um, which ended up being very important that that was the year we did it because store four was in Baltimore and Baltimore is an hour away. Yeah. Um, So we needed to make sure, we wanted to make sure that we maintained that consistency uh, so that when our customers were going to visit our stores in Baltimore, they were getting the same same kind of treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So how did your employees um, respond to that? And do you think that it sounds like what you're saying too is structure is huge for people and and knowing you know that the organization has a structure and has kind of these are some of the expectations and then they can kind of take that and apply it to everything they do yes i don't know uh if you've ever had a um erratic boss or a bad boss um or leader at an organization where you've been and i hear this a lot from my associates gosh the last place i worked the bosses were so mean or nobody was this nice or this is the nicest place i've ever worked and i think some of that is consistency so even if a rule seems tough if you're consistent about it with everybody everybody knows that that's a standard and i think as humans we like to be busy i think most of us need someone to tell us what to do. Sometimes yeah. I wish I had someone to tell me what to do. Um, and I think when we approach someone um, to interact with them, we respond better if we know there's that consistency. So yeah. if the associates know that the managers believe in these core values and live by them. They know that's where the manager is going to speak from or where I'm going to speak from. Um, and so I think that I think it helps. Can you give us like a, little, a few examples of what a few of those core values are? And maybe how yeah, that applies. So, yeah. So be a good neighbor um, is one of our favorite because we are so urban and a lot of my associates walk, mm-hmm. um, which means they live in the communities where they, where they work. And we want them to get to know people when they walk in and assume that they live right next door to them. Now, I think this happens in small towns across the country. Um, and so it seems a little strange to be talking about it in this setting, but um, I think be a good neighbor has has been a really great tenant because it just reminds people that when anybody walks in the door, they might actually go home and live next to them and they don't want to be a jerk. (laughs) And you know, what's so interesting about that too? Cause I feel like for a lot of people that might be transplants, like, I mean, at one point you were a transplant from Ohio. Um, so there's people that move to DC from all over and they probably miss some of that neighborhood, you know, people know your name type of feel. And that might be another one of the reasons they come back to your hardware stores because they yeah. feel like it's part of their neighborhood and they're 
they're remembered or someone will go, oh, Joe's back. Hey, Joe, we got you. You're whatever. You, you know what I mean? Like there's yep. there's something about that that I think people are missing in in, you know, big cities and small, small communities that are getting so true. You know, somebody it's Marshall's actually. So I was watching TV last night and Marshall's has this really great Christmas commercial and it's people walking down a main street and, you know, they're all dressed for the holidays and it's very festive. And, and it's, I mean, Marshall's is a big box. Yeah. The idea is holiday shopping should be about community. And when Mm -hmm. all everyone does is shop online or drive to a big parking lot and go to some place that's sort of nameless and faceless, that community piece is taken out of holiday shopping. Yeah. And then it just becomes a chore, and there is nothing fun about that. Yeah. Um, so I really liked the, the idea of this commercial that Marshalls had, was putting on the air because it, it's exactly what you said, yeah. even in cities. Um, so, yeah, so that's – so Be a Good Neighbor is a good one. I think Always Grow and Share is probably one of my favorites because I think um, – we hire folks who have never had a job before or may have not had a job for years for various reasons. And I think everybody is capable of learning something every single day. And I think people get really excited when they can share a piece of knowledge with somebody else, no matter how big or small it is. So always grow and share is probably my favorite because I can walk down on the floor now and talk to an associate and just say something like, Hey, what's the coolest thing you helped a customer with today and someone's eyes will light up or what's the new product that came in that you think is really awesome for us or whatever so for you what's something that you have learned in your in your tenure running a hardware operation that before you started you would have thought oh I need to hire someone to do that like are there any projects now that you can do that you're like you know super proud of that that you can do it on your own and you don't need anyone kind of like that the Rosie the Riveter pose, you're right, just standing right. over there like, I got this. <laughs> yep. I think, well, so I think probably my favorite easiest is changing a flapper in a toilet because okay. everybody is so afraid of doing that. Yeah. Men, women, old, young, I mean, across the spectrum, people are really afraid. And I remember years ago, a, a plumber saying that a going rate to change a flapper was like $60. Wow. Well, flappers cost, what, five ninety nine? I should know this, right? Uh, but... <laughs> I would tell people that would come in, like, you can't break the toilet. Try it yourself before you spend the $60. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of things that I was explaining to customers um, because, in, you know, I had read about them or in theory or I had had a tradesman tell me how it happens, but I hadn't actually done it myself. Um, I was li- living a bit of a lie, we would joke about. So um, <laughs> a couple of things like that that I just made myself do to realize that, oh, yeah, this is, like, super easy yeah um, but that's that's probably my favorite learning how to use wall anchors super simple right but still scares people yeah um, and then changing a flapper the nice thing about you know I said we hire a lot of folks who don't have any experience there's probably 20 questions that we get asked a hundred times a week at the hardware store very yeah. standard and so once a new associate masters those 20 questions they can move on to bigger things and those 20 questions can make so many customers happy oh yeah yeah, for sure. So from your website, and, and we've already kind of talked about this a little bit about the neighborhood aspect, but um, each of your each of your stores has that that theme around neighborhood. And like you said, they're all named after their neighborhoods that they're yep. in. Um, how did that kind of come to be? Because it sounds like with the first store, it just happened that way. You and your husband were living there. Do you still live in the area? And like, we do. 
and and tell us a little bit about how that kind of formed and and what you know when I met you the first time I was in town for I think it was the true value reunion but I was visiting stores in the area while I was in town and I wanted to go to your store and you were having your one of your annual ladies nights it was packed like it I think it was the store that has the three floors Yep, it was. Uh, um, two floors. Two. Yeah, two floors. Yeah. And yep. it was just, I mean, I walked in shoulder to shoulder. Like, <laughs> people were having so much fun. There were so many different vendors, cool products, like little demos going on. Um, and even one of my really good friends who I've known since I was a child, we were 11 years old. She lives in D.C. now. And I met up with her and I told her I was there. And she goes, oh, I go there all the time. Ah, I think she even so knew awesome. one of your associates like names. And I told you about it. And you're like, yeah, he works here. So it's just it was just I could see that um, that neighborhood feel and the excitement people had. I mean, there was like literally a line to come in with everyone on their event brights. Like I, I had, I'm attending the event, you know? So tell me a yep. little bit about what that's like having events and things like that. Um, and do you think that that also builds into your uh, core value of, you know, being a good neighbor and, and making your each of your stores their own reflection of their communities? Yeah, I think, so we definitely named Logan Hardware after Logan Circle because we were living here, and it just seemed like the logical thing to do. Um, the neighborhood that year had voted against letting a Starbucks into the neighborhood. So just it, we wanted the, the community sense was we wanted everything to be very organic and locally grown, no national chains. Yeah. No one understands what co-ops are, and they certainly didn't understand what ACE was. And so uh, I think we had we had a blip of brilliance where we were like, the neighborhood is going to want this to reflect local, mm-hmm. um, and at the time, Ace's branding requirements didn't require that we used Ace in the name, and so that's the genesis of Logan Hardware. Yeah. When we were getting ready to open the second one, um, we had we talked about the fact that people would say, "I am going to Logan's" or "I am going to Logan." Mm-hmm. Instead of meaning the neighborhood, they literally meant they were coming to the hardware store. Yeah. And so we wanted the next neighborhood was called Glover Park. We wanted that community to feel like it was very fiercely their hardware store. Yeah. Um, and so it, we just, it grew that way. It's funny because branding-wise, it's a nightmare, right? My website has to have 11 <laughs> names, and yeah. my letterhead has to have 11 names, and my business card, whatever. Um, but it helped really solidify this hyper-local feeling that we have in our communities. And then I had read a book years ago by an, an author named Judy Wicks. And Judy, well, she's not, she, is, she authored the book, but she was a restaurateur by trade. And uh, now she's, she's a really... <laughs> She's an amazing activist. I think she's, she most recently got arrested. Uh, she's 76, and she's wow. still like, passionately advocating and, and um, protesting for things she believes in. But she opened a restaurant in Philadelphia. Um, I think the restaurant, well, it's called the White Dog Cafe, and it might be 40 years old this year. She's since sold it. But long story short, Judy truly believed in hosting events as a way to get her community and her customers more personally involved with her restaurant. Yeah. And so I read the, I read her book years ago called Good Morning Beautiful Business, and I started thinking, well, gosh, I can't afford to do paper advertisement in Washington, D.C. My neighbors walk. Mm-hmm. Um, they're taking metros to other parts of town. They might not know they need a hardware store because they think that they should go to the grocery store for cleaning supplies or CVS for an air filter. How am I going to get them to come in? And so we started dabbling with the idea of events. Now, you know, 16 years later, it's very interesting because if you read any research, especially about millennials, they'll say they want to know the people they're shopping with. Yeah. 
half of them, right? The other half don't want to pick up the phone. They only want to text and they only want to shop online. So it's very bifurcated. And so I don't want to play in the only online texting world. I want to play in the, I want you, I call it my hand-to-hand combat face-to-face. Yeah. Um, Let's bring you in so that you see how cool it is. I really love, we had a ladies night recently at our Canton store in Baltimore. We had 325 ladies come. Oh my gosh. For the listeners, my stores are between like 5,000 and 8,000 square feet. So So that's a lot of people. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's a lot of people. We sold approximately 85 houseplants that night because it's a very uh, millennial-filled neighborhood. Yeah. Millennials love houseplants, (laughs) and they thought it was hip to come to Ladies' Night at the hardware store and buy their houseplants. And I was all about it. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. Uh, I picked up a, so this is a short side note that you might find funny. Um, earlier this summer on, uh, in Indianapolis, we have the circle downtown mm-hmm. around the monument. And they, they, there's always like different people that come to the circle and do stuff. So I always walk there when it's nice outside and they were handing out, some company was handing out like house plants and they were just handing out little mini house plants to people, and you could take them and put them in your office. A brilliant idea to promote their business. I mean, it has a business card, and it was like, if you want us to do your whole office, we will, that type of thing. So I grab yep. it, and I put it in a little planter in the office, but my like area is not by a window. And so uh-huh. it's just, you know, I'm like, I don't think this thing is going to survive. So then I put it by a window, and I forgot about it. And my friend is like, my colleague is like, uh, I'm the plant father now, and you no longer have the rights. <laughs> And he waters it, and he's like, it's my baby now because you did not take care of it. DCS came and took this plant That's away hilarious. from you. Yes. So, yeah, I couldn't even keep a houseplant alive. But anyways. Well, I, we sell a lot of fake houseplants now for people like you. Seriously, I need those, you know. Yeah. It looks nice, and I didn't have to do anything to to keep it living. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's a great niche. It, it really is. Really? thousands and thousands of houseplants. That's amazing. So um, what is something, and and whenever there's events, do you try and go to all of them or how do you, how do you kind of have your presence and um, like where, how do you kind of toe that line? Because you're in DC, but then I know Maryland's only an hour away, but how do you kind of juggle it all? So we only do ladies nights at, let's see, I should know this, five of our stores. Okay. And we do them once a year. It's just, it's a really big production. And yeah. so um, all of my stores clamor for them. They would love to have them, but we have committed to doing them at fewer locations. Yeah. So I, my personal commitment is if, if I'm in town, I am at that ladies' night because I like nothing better to see an entire hardware store full of women. The energy is fantastic. The questions are just amazing. People meet their neighbors, and so it's fun. We get other local businesses involved, which is really cool. Like, I see lots of opportunities for us to help boost up smaller businesses. So all throughout the year, we host pop-up maker's markets. And so you might make towels or greeting cards, or you might be a metalsmith, or you might be a glassblower. We invite these folks to, um, to pop up in our stores or on our sidewalks so that they get more exposure from our customer base. So we use our ladies' nights to bring in other locally-owned businesses. So mm-hmm. I go if I can. I, I'm go- going to miss one in January, and it's already bothering me. That Aww. Here. Yeah. Um, and then the other one massive event that we do um, every year are our spring garden parties. Yeah. And Garden and City 
doesn't always seem synonymous, but we have thousands of people that come to our garden parties, and we do we host the garden party in Baltimore on one day and all of the DC stores on another day. So I get to a couple of those, but I usually pick one where I can work. Like I might be the terrarium maker or the popcorn maker or whatever, yeah. um, so that I can truly have a, a meaningful experience with the customers. Definitely. Yeah, um, and then we do small stuff all year that I may or may not be able to participate in yeah um another thing that i think is so unique about your business and first of all i love the the fact that the company is called a few cool hardware stores so when did you get that kind of name stamped on and have that as the 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 company name well that was kind of a fluke too because my first location was logan hardware and my business card and email signature said gina schaefer owner of Logan Hardware, and then I added Glover Park, Gina Schaefer, Logan, owner of Logan Hardware and Glover Park. And the third store was called Tenley Town Ace Hardware, which is a lot of words, yeah. <laughs> a lot of letters. Um, and it's long, and I, I wrote it in my signature line on my email one day, and I was like, that sounds a little pretentious. Yeah. And so I just, as a fluke, wrote a few owner of a few cool hardware stores. Yeah. Um, and people started noticing. I was really surprised at how many people pay attention to email signatures. And I think, you know, this was 2007. And so it might have been a novelty at the time, but um, people started commenting. And then we had a marketing manager who started working with us, I think in 2009. And she's like, I'm not sure if this works. And I said, let's do a survey. And so we sent a survey out to our associates, because at that point, we had five, which is not a few, right? So I thought maybe people would think we were stupid. Um, (laughs) So we sent an email out to our customers and our associates. And the response of, no, you have to keep this was overwhelming. And then it just stuck. So now it's a thing. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Well, you do have a few. It is more than a few, you know, but still, I I think that it's, it's just fun. It kind of reflects the personality of the overall uh, business, which is great. Um, Thank you. So another thing I'd love to dig into is corporate philanthropy. And yep. your organization is involved in a variety of things. I heard you, I think you were speaking on something before I, you know, put together my questions. I saw you talking about like Jubilee jobs and things like that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the ways that your organization gives back to the communities that it's in, that, it, that they're all a part of. Yeah, so I think that ties really nicely into, you know, me reading Judy Judy's book and wanting to do, um, wanting to get the community involved. And then obviously I had a background in it with a passion for nonprofits. And so um, taking that rising tides mentality, like how do we get our customers involved with these amazing nonprofits there in Washington, D.C. in a variety of ways. And so uh, we typically have, you know, ACE's national charity is Children's Miracle Network, and we have a phenomenal children's hospital in both Baltimore and D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started out um, introducing our customers to them and doing the roundup at the pin pad and the, I guess years ago it was the icon, you know, people would buy an icon and put it on the wall Yeah. Um, in the stores. And then we wanted to get even more local than that because not all of our, not the, a children's hospital, while it is, you know, a phenomenal philanthropy or, or cause, mm-hmm. doesn't resonate with everybody. And so then we started thinking about what other things our neighbors were excited and passionate about. Pets, so we do lots of dog and cat adoptions. Um, we allow them to pop up on the sidewalk, and so we get our customers involved with, I don't know how many dozens of dogs and cats we've had adopted now through these events. Um, I joined the board of an organization that helps folks find jobs, which was Jubilee Jobs at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we became very passionate about advocating on minimum wage being raised and people getting second chances and uh, 
helping nonprofits that were helping people who were um, coming back into the work, workforce from a variety of um, you know past experiences, and then it just it just kept growing from there. So now we do I mean all sorts of things. My my B two B program um, has a nonprofit arm that helps co-ops and nonprofits through donations, uh, through do, um, discounts. Yeah. Um, it's fun. I really like talking about the the I like talking about this part because my so many people on my team get involved. It's just really cool. <laughs> For sure. And it, it kind of I think this is something that if you if you're truly passionate about something in your community and you're willing to go out there as a business owner and support that um whether it's a nonprofit or it's a, you know, a food shelter or this or that, I think people see that as, you know, you're genuinely part of our neighborhood and they're going to be more likely to shop with you than just, if you're just posting circulars on your social media page and this, that, and the other, I think you're going to have better results. If you come to this, if you come to the table with more of a a servant's heart or looking, how can I help others? And they're going to say the same thing back. Yeah. That's just yeah. kind of what I've observed, it, it seems. And the, the business aspect of it, uh, which sometimes takes me a long time to admit, you know, it's very expensive to do, it's very expensive to operate retail stores. And in Washington, yeah. that is very much the case. And I wouldn't, my doors wouldn't, wouldn't even be open and people would start calling and asking for donations. And so we realized early on that we had to set some parameters because yeah. we're just by nature givers and I wanted to do that. And so... Uh, we set a couple parameters. For example, a store needs to be open for a year before it will make any charitable donations. I yeah. have to pay my team before I can pay the community. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it has to be a nonprofit that is in the neighborhood where our store is. Yeah. So, you know, I love um, some of the national nonprofits like United Way or, you know, I don't know, we can name a million big ones, but they're national. Yeah. So we are much more likely to figure out a way to support um, a women's shelter down the street because you know where you know where it's yeah. going to go to you know that yeah. you're helping yeah. yeah no I think that's huge and I think that's something that some people struggle like retailers I've talked to in the past have said they've struggled with is you know like you said your your doors are closed you're on vacation and you're still getting bombarded by requests yeah. and and it's finding a way to still do that but not go broke in the process so right, it's, exactly. it's probably a delicate balance i would imagine we also tell folks that they have to give us 45 days notice so if somebody yeah. asks us and it's a week and even though we love them we will typically say it's a 45 day notice yeah and i um, think that's a smart way to do it too for yeah. sure yeah um, we're bigger targets right because there's 11 of us so that means i have 11 managers that are being asked in 11 communities and so we just have to balance uh what we give and don't give and then personally i serve on um, a couple of national nonprofit boards. One is a think tank that um, does research on um, community broadband issues, small business issues. It's incredible. I think that the the folks who work at that organization are light years smarter than me, <laughs> but they also like to be connected to the small build business community, and so that's how I got involved. Um, they need real-world examples, and so that's been really educational and eye-opening for me um, on a variety of national levels, not national topics, and then... Um, House of Ruth, which is a local uh, organization that supports women who are victims of domestic violence. And so we do a whole host of interesting things with them. And that's more of a personal yeah. um, philanthropic endeavor that I get a chance to get the stores involved in, you know, through a roundup process. Or We sell chocolate bars. I always joke that we're the Girl Scouts of hardware stores. I love but, it. You know. So yeah. how, how do you juggle, you know, 
personally, because you do do a lot of things outside of your nine to five job and and hardware is not a nine to five job. So I take that part back, but how do you juggle, you know, the hardware store and then you're doing different events and you're doing different philanthropic things throughout the business. But then personally, you're also out there, you're serving on boards, you're involved in different nonprofit organizations. Um, Are you involved in, in some deeper level with like ACE as well? Um, well, I was. I served on the ACE corporate board for nine years. Yeah, um, so. I rolled off, um, gosh, has it been two or three years now that I rolled off of that board? So now, I, now I'm just cursorily involved. So uh, I had an awesome opportunity a couple weeks ago to go and present to the uh, women at ACE group. Yeah. Um, so, but no, you know, short of going to the shows and then if someone calls, or I participate with my local, like yesterday, my local ACE retailer group got together. Yeah. But, on a corporate level, I don't have any, I don't have any responsibilities. So, kind of, I'm so, kind of just a doer. Yeah. So, how do you do all of that, though? I don't do anything at the stores. My team is amazing. Yeah. I have, like, I have a really, really good uh, leadership team. I have phenomenal back office folks that we sort of, they, most of them grew up, up with us in the business, learning it as we did. You know, my inventory manager started at that first location, working in the plumbing department, and he's. Now he runs all the inventory for the stores. And so um, I like to think that we were all kids that just figured out how to work together and grow the business. Um, I don't do a lot day to day. I think I probably provide a lot of direction and moral support, but I don't have, um, I don't have like a day to day task. So we have set meetings, you know, leadership meetings, managers meetings. I do, we also run a rental business, and so we have a new manager in that role, and so I meet with him once a week. But, um, you know, and the nice thing about technology now is you can be virtual. So oh, yeah. I can be working from almost anywhere in the world on my phone or via Skype or whatever, yeah. and I don't have to be in an office. What are your so, thoughts on, like, mentorship? Like, do you do you mentor the, the employees that come through your business, or have you done that over the years? And I don't know if, like, when you first started out, even before hardware, did you have, like, a mentor that helped you? Because I feel like that's kind of a buzzword right now. And yeah. whether you're in hardware or anywhere else, it's like everyone's looking for someone to kind of give them some advice or guidance, you know, beyond just being like, I'm your boss, but right, someone right. that can kind of give – give back in that way? I believe more in informal, uh, an informal process for mentorship, meaning it shouldn't be something that's forced or planned. Yeah. So, you know, so I had another retailer who called me a couple of days ago and she said, I, I really could use some advice. Can I come in and hang out? And to me, that's a really great form of mentorship. And I learn just as much. Yeah. Uh, and so I do a lot of that with small business owners in Washington, a little bit of it with other ACE retailers. Um, I have a, my husband and I have an ACE peer group and it's a group of, I guess, seven of us from around the country and we get together. We don't call it mentoring each other, but that's truly what we do. You know, yeah. hey, Gina, what do you stink at that we can help you with or what are <laughs> yeah. you really good at that, that you should teach us? And then certainly with my associates, I mean, the car- compartmentalization of or the, not being able to be in multiple places at once makes it difficult. I have to say, you know, I just can't personally know every associate at that store yeah but you know my office is in a store now and i i love my associates here and i talk to them as much as possible and if somebody is struggling with something or needs advice or needs help or whatever then i'd love to do that yeah um i didn't have this on the list because i don't ever want it to be like 
you know, labeling, but you have been asked many times over the years as a female in the hardware industry. Do you have any other thoughts on that? I feel like we're finally at a place where it's just, it is what it is, but I do think there is still somewhat of that, you know, women in hardware, there is a little bit of a distinction still, although I don't I, think there should be, but... There, there absolutely shouldn't be, right? I mean, it's the same with people are always like, well, you're in a male-dominated business. Well, historically, all businesses were pretty much male-dominated, yeah. so... At some point, we have to stop talking about it that way. But I think I, I definitely think there's still a stigma. You know, people often assume that I either got the store from my dad or that my husband started it. Yeah. Um, and that that will come up. Um, I still, my female associates will still have somebody on the floor say, "Is there a guy here who can help me?" That's so um, frustrating. So, yeah, it is. And so I think you know, there's still, and that can happen in any walk of life with any. I mean, any industry. Yeah. any industry and so we know what we know what the challenges are um we are more than capable of rising to them i heard a, this is anecdotal so I, I would like to see some more research done but the um one of the groups of women at ace did a um just a mini a leadership less project i think and yeah they were calculating how many female owners are ace owners mm -hmm. and when they figured out that number they took it a step farther, and they did some research that showed that the female-owned stores were outperforming the other stores. Hey, I love yeah. that. <laughs> so again, I mean, I haven't seen, like, cold, hard proof. Yeah. But I know, at least in my region here in Washington, D.C., we have some really amazing women-led stores um, that are doing some innovative things um, because we all know we have to keep changing to compete because it's just so hard in retail right now. Yeah. Um, like, I, I joke, although I should actually put the numbers to paper, I sell more greeting cards and candles than I do screwdrivers. I sell more <laughs> canning jars than I do power tools. And I sell more flower pots than anything else in the store. Look and neither that. of those four items are in a core hardware store. Yeah. Well, canning jars might be. Yeah. But... Well, I love that. Well, I I hope you didn't think I was being sexist by asking. I no, just think no, no. it is one of those things where it's like, I mean, it is powerful to be able to say, okay, you can think something when, or you can assume that a female associate doesn't know what she's doing yep. or won't know how to use this, that, or the other. But I think it's powerful that there are a lot of really great female leaders across our country in the hardware industry. And yep. so just celebrating that and embracing it. I think we have to keep it. talking about it. I think that it's an industry that has, um, I think it's an industry that needs to diversify. Oh yeah. Can you base. talk a little bit about that as well? Because I mean, being in urban locations, you have people from all walks of life, all, all backgrounds. Over. All over. And One would you our, say that you know, that brings something more to the table than just having, um, Oh my gosh. I it mean, it's delicious, right? Like we have so many languages that are spoken and cultures that are represented and, I mean, there are challenges, right? Because there, you can have cultural differences yeah. and all sorts of all sorts of interesting challenges that you can have. But you know, we have a a pretty it's not super robust, but a great B two B program, and we have many of the world's embassies as accounts. Wow! Um, and that's just kind of a source of pride. Like a couple weeks ago, the the Holy See, which is Vatican City, um, mm -hmm. or the Vatican, like they signed up for a business account. I'm like, I'm kind of the Pope's hardware store. That is so <laughs> cool. Oh my gosh. That's like our, right? <laughs> so no, that's really cool. But I think, I think that, um, as the country goes, the hardware industry needs to, and that means that we need to really embrace the, the diverseness of our communities and of our potential ownership base. Yeah. Um, 
we need to appeal to different kinds of owners, kinds of people to become owners. Um, as Definitely. the industry grows and changes and flexes, we need to figure out how to find more women or folks of color. Yeah. Um, we need associates that speak other languages um, because I think that it's a business that should reflect, no matter what community you live in or language you need or language you speak, you probably have a toilet that needs to be fixed yeah. at some point, right? Yeah. Um, or you want to paint your walls uh, or whatever. Um, exactly. So, yeah, I could go on. I love this topic because I think that it's, there's so many amazing things about the, the, the history of the hardware industry. Uh, I know. There's so many ways that it needs to modernize. Continue to evolve. And I think as yes. more people are retiring and leaving the industry, it would be great to see some new fresh faces in the hardware industry. And so even just maybe someone will stumble across this podcast that isn't currently even working in a hardware store and they go, yep. I want to start a business. Huh? Maybe that would be, you know what I mean? I, I think that. the more, the more people that you get from different walks of life that can bring something new to the table, it's just going to make our industry stronger. So absolutely. Um, absolutely. So one of the things I always like to ask people when they're on the podcast is, you know, podcasts are really they've really grown in popularity the past few years. And that was one of the reasons we wanted to do this. I actually got into them because I would listen to all those true crime podcasts and, you know, <laughs> get myself armed. So if someone's looking at me funny, I have my, my mace in one hand and my, you know, but, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, do you have any like content that you're listening to any podcasts or any books that you're reading that is, that's been inspiring you or that, that you're enjoying, um, that you do when you're not working or volunteering or thinking about hardware? Yeah. <laughs> In all of those times, I travel a lot. So I have a lot of time I on love airplanes that. when I can, when I can read. I just, so my commute to my office is, is about 11 minutes. And so I often complain, this is the funniest complaint in the world, right? <laughs> I complain that my commute is not long enough to, I know. to officially listen to a podcast, Yeah, um, which is like the dumbest thing to complain about. <laughs> but um, so I love how I built this with Guy Riaz, Guy Raz, I think is his name, R-A-Z. Okay. Um, so it's how I built this. And they interview a lot of like really well-known entrepreneurs, folks who have built businesses like Virgin yes. Atlantic or Spanx or Jenny's ice cream or whatever. I've heard um, of that. Yes. Yeah. So I find that super, um, super inspiring. Um, I listen to a lot of TED talks. I think I have a secret dream of being on the TED stage and I don't know how I'm going to make that happen, but I, I think I if really, you put really stuff out in the world though, like just saying that <laughs> right back. now, you know, it's gonna, yes. it's manifesting. I believe yes. it. I think it can I happen. I totally agree. So I really want to give a TED talk, but I really like listening to TED talks. Um, I listened to a great one yesterday about bottling up our feelings, and I started to think about how that pertains to a, a, a boss. You know, like I, I take on the stress of an employee, but then it becomes a feeling that I am holding in, and like, yeah, like how do I make sure that I get that expressed so that anyway, I yeah, that's proper. But uh, and then I recently, um, I, this is funny because well, I, the, the most recent sort of businessy sort of book, it's not even business. I read a lot, and I, I read a lot of. Uh, biographies and memoirs, but I read this memoir called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, hmm. and it was written by a therapist who f decides that she needs to go to therapy, and so there's a lot of humor in it. Oh, um, I like that. There's a lot of poignancy, so, you know, there were a couple points where I'm sure that I was crying, but, um, you know, it just reminds you that we don't have to be perfect, that we all should be surrounding ourselves with a, a, a support system, 
yeah. um, that we can take advantage of. We can't be isolated. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I try not. I mean, it sounds sort of self-helpy, and I don't read a lot of that kind of stuff, but I liked this book. Yeah. I yeah. thought it was pretty cool. One of the, I'm, I've gotten really into audiobooks, so I listen to a lot of great audiobooks mm-hmm. through, and I do it through the library, so I'm not cool. wasting yep. all of my money on, uh, you know. Libby? Yeah, I use the Libby yep. app. I love it. I love Libby. And then I do a lot of podcasts, and I've been listening to a lot of Lewis Howes, and uh-huh. he, his is called The School of Greatness. So if you ever are looking for a Write podcast to listen Thank to, you. you should listen to it. He talks to amazing people and from all walks of life who have great stories i think he, he cool. he's probably done over like 700 interviews which is insane but um wow. yeah you'll have to check him out too um thank you yeah of course so one of the last couple questions we have we always like to ask because you know we've we've worked with you over the years and and you know Maybe you don't have a lot of, of thoughts with NRHA or Hardware Retailing Magazine, but I don't know if there's anything from just getting to know us. I know you were one of our top guns a couple years ago. Yep. So yep. is there anything you can talk about if people are looking to get involved in, in the industry across, you know, all different co-ops and wholesalers and things like that? Well, speaking for your organization specifically, one funny anecdote is that my peer group, we always try to one-up each other. And so if one of us gets featured in the magazine, yeah, we all, like, we're all, like, you, super Like bragging and kind of like, like, oh, Oh, my who's... gosh, you're, you just one-up so-and-so. No, you have to. So I'm going to be very excited to tell the guys, and they're all men, that I got interviewed for this podcast. Yes, I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> so I think, um, so two things. I, I use the magazine as my... Um, and I'm not blowing smoke. I do. I, I use it to keep my pulse on the industry, like what mm-hmm. products are coming out, what retailers are doing things that are so cool that I better check them out, um, that sort of thing. I often will handwrite notes. Like if, if you feature somebody that I've never heard of or that's done something well receiving accolades, I, I will hand, send them a note. And so I've made some fun connections that way. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I use that as kind of my basis. And then I think, to go to your point about researching the industry, somebody who wants to be new, I think in order for us to survive, we have to make sure we're thinking way outside the industry. Mm-hmm. So um, I appreciate having uh, the work that um, the NRHA does as my, my foundation. And then I do things like go to pet shows or go to party supply shows or go visit pottery vendors. I fly to the Netherlands to buy my Christmas products. So I think in order for us to survive, we have to really get out of the hardware world, but you just have to remember what that foundation is. For sure. um, That sounded a little cheesy now that I'm hearing myself, but that's what I do. I love that. Speaking of cheesy, we were at a hardware store yesterday, and they had a tea towel that said, life's Gouda, and it was a picture of a Gouda cheese. (laughs) That's Which awesome. I just I just thought that was awesome. So that's awesome. You know, one of the other things we do. This is a, the perfect uh, segue since we're talking about cheese. Is um, co-ops have seven principles or eight principles, and principle number seven is basically like cooperating with other co-ops. Yeah. And so Cabot Creamery is a co-op in New England. They're super <gasps> yes. supportive of my stores. They send us cheese for our events. I love it. Um, they are amazing, and so we do. Um, one of my biggest B two B clients is a co-op here that serves churches, synagogues, and nonprofits. Because we want to be part of the co-op world, and Cabot has really helped me. Um, That's amazing. Focus on that. Yeah, I was there is, there, yeah. Another little segue. We just keep doing our little segues here. I was in. I so I did a road trip through New England uh, this past summer. 
and you can listen to if you're if you're bored and want to listen to podcasts, you can listen to mine. You know, okay. Uh, but we had I talked to retailers from all over the New England area, and I cool. went to Cabot, Vermont, to Harry's Hardware in the Den. They have yep. a bar within their hardware store, and Bye. they they have live music. So I was at the hardware store on I think it was like a Thursday night. Took pictures of them, hung out, had a had a Vermont beer and. You know, they're all just so welcoming. Everyone thought I was from Wisconsin, which is okay. <laughs> I guess I have a Wisconsin vibe, although Illinois, you know, Illinois is pretty close. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, so if you're ever in the Cabot area to get your cheese, you can also get your hardware and a beer. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, well, I love New England. There's so many great um, co-ops up there and hardware stores. But, yeah, Cabot, they're special. It's so cool. They're, they are truly uh, they called one day and they said, we want to ship cheese to one of your events. And, and you know, you always like, why? What's in it for you? And Roberta McDonald is their, like, absolute marketing genius. And she said, we just want you to have good cooperatively made cheese at your parties. I love fact, that. There's a big box in our my refrigerator right now for some event that we're having next weekend. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, yeah. cheese just makes people happy. Except for those who are smile. lactose intolerant and I feel <laughs> bad for them. <laughs> uh, just take a lactate pill and you'll be good, right? <laughs> They sell one that's, I feel like they sell one with no lactose. Am I making that up? Maybe. They might have one. Cheese for all. I love this. It might. Cheese, <laughs> that's a great, yeah, cheese for all. <laughs> so is there Maybe. anything else? I love we're ending on a cheesy note, but is there anything else that you want to, like, share with our listeners? Um, maybe you have any words of advice or anything for someone who's, you know, whether they're an employee at a hardware store and they're listening to this because they want to be inspired to move up in a store or there's someone who stumbled across it and is wanting to open a business and they're like, I don't know anything about hardware. I mean, I feel like you approached it from a very entrepreneurial stance yep. of being like, I might not know everything, but I'll figure it out. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I read somewhere that 70% of all business ideas never get started because people are afraid and we have to get past that fear. Yeah. And we have to think outside of the box and we have to, you know, you may have zero interest in something like power tools, for example, but that doesn't mean you can't run a great hardware store. We've become more of a general store. Those of us that are good at it, right? I sell yeah. tons of balloons, for example. Um, so I think the, my piece of advice to anybody who wants to start a business is figure out how to get past that fear. Mm-hmm. Um, research what you're doing. If you're interested in hardware, let's just talk about it. I mean, yeah. I'll tell you the good and the bad, and I'll tell you, you know, I have people who call and say, I'm going to retire, I want to open a hardware store. No. <laughs> it's too physically demanding to do, yeah. um, you know. So, you know, talking about things like that and who and how and why, and uh, for my associates or any other associates who might be listening, I always say that it's amazing what you can learn working in a retail environment that you can take to any other kind of job. So all jobs require, well, 90% of them, right, human interaction. Yeah. So what kinds of interpersonal skills and communication skills are you learning or do you want to leave and become a tradesperson so how are you totally geeking out in the electrical department so that you can go to HVAC school or become a a master electrician Um, I have a young woman right now getting her master gardener's license because she got thrown into the plant department almost by accident had never had a plant in her life and now she's just she it's her passion yeah super geeked out about it I love Um, that yeah, so never underestimate how, you know, I'm using air quotes now. People say, I just work in a hardware store. No way, man. You are working in an environment that's, like, perfectly ripe to learn all sorts of amazing things. That's so cool. And it's true. Yeah. I think any job you have in your life is hopefully um, preparing you for whatever is next, 
whether yeah. you're owning your own hardware store or you're going into something completely different, everyone takes yep. something. So Take don't don't disregard it and use it and and I mean can do anything. I think there's a lot of great people out there who've been in the hardware industry, um, including yourself. So absolutely. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Gina, for talking to us today. We really appreciated yeah, having fun. you on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Take Have care. a good one. Bye. You too. Bye bye. Did you know that if you're an independent home improvement retailer, you are already a member of the North American Retail Hardware Association? The NRHA has been in existence since 1900 and serves its members in a variety of ways. From Hardware Retailing Magazine and our two podcast series to exclusive research and events, the association is here to help you become a better, more profitable business owner. To learn about what NRHA is doing for you, visit nrha.org.